Thank you, Joe. Thank you, everyone. It's wonderful to be back. Uh, you have to understand, I speak a lot of places uh, once, so um, <laughs> to be invited back, I take as kind of a real honor, and I want to thank Jamie, and, uh, but I guess he feels safe. He's halfway away in the globe, so, uh, but no, it's, it's a treat to be back, and um, uh, you know, I always have to come by myself first time so that you might accept me and love me. And then now that I know that I'm accepted in love, we bring in the the big guns. And so um, everyone always wants to meet, of course, Mrs. Butterworth. So, um, <laughs> Kath, would you stand and uh, we, you can be acknowledged. This is my wife, Kathy. And we'll be at uh, the back afterwards. We have books and, I don't know, did you bring syrup? I don't know. We, got, we have stuff that we'll have available for you uh, back there as well. Um, you know, life is complicated. The older I get, the more I think it's going to get easier. And all I'm doing is just getting older. It, it, it's really not getting any easier. It's very complicated. And there are so many demands. And just when I think I'm entering a phase of life where it's really going to lighten up, circumstances arise that make it continually complicated. How do I juggle all the balls of the demands that life brings my way? Um, It's an issue that I think is really worth addressing no matter what age, stage, phase of life you may be. Uh, Because I, I think it's valuable for us to understand how significant it is that we achieve balance in our lives. I love stories. I love metaphors. Um, I I think I have found a a fascinating metaphor to set this up for you uh, this morning. Uh, For years, uh, as a family with our five children, uh, we have uh, participated in in summer uh, Bible conference ministries where we've gone to some of the great conference centers throughout the country and spend a week in the summer uh, teaching. And of course, one of the great advantages for us as a family is they allow the whole family to come and we get a little bit of a vacation as well. Um, We live in Southern California. There is a wonderful conference center uh, just northeast of Los Angeles out into the mountains where there are are places like Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead and all those places, Uh, a place called Forest Home uh, Christian Conference Center. And we went to Forest Home for years. I mean, my kids grew up going to summer camp at Forest Home. Uh, We loved the way they did the family camps because there would be two speakers, and I would always ask to be the first speaker so that I could do the mornings, and then I could play with the kids in the afternoon, and then an evening speaker was required to keep everyone awake uh, after they've played hard all day. And so I I just loved it. And there was a year that we went to Forest Home where they had something new on the campgrounds, and in classic child psychology. I'll never forget how it worked. Because, you know, you would have meetings age appropriate in the morning, and then you'd all gather for lunch. You'd spend all afternoon together, have dinner together, and then you'd go off to your age appropriate meetings again. So it's Monday morning. We've been there uh, the whole half day, and we're all reassembled at lunch. And my kids come back to the lunch table, and they said, Dad, you won't believe what they told us at camp today. I said, what? They said, boys and girls, don't let your mom and dad take you to the lake. There's something new and scary at the lake. It's called the blob. Don't go up there, boys and girls. Don't let your mom and dad take you. And of course, then there's the appropriate beat, and they say, so can we hurry up and eat and go up to the lake and see the blob? You know, which, of course, we all did. Now, 
Who knows what I'm referring to when I talk about a blob? Oh, this is the blob service. There were only like five in the first service. We've got eight. So anyway, um, let me try to explain what a blob is, okay? A blob is a, 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 a piece of giant rubber. Remember, remember when we had inner tubes as a kid and we'd float down the river? It's the same kind of thing, except instead of a donut, it's a giant hot dog. A, a, a blob is about 10 feet wide. It's about 30 feet long. <laughs> you inflate it. You put it in a lake with one end by the side of the lake and the other end going out into the center of the lake. The only other piece of equipment that you need is a high dive. And the way you play with the blob is people, one by one, jump off and land on the blob, on the back end, and then they scooch up to the front and kind of give an okay sign. And then the next person comes off the high dive and hits the back of the blob. In blob technology and terminology, this is known as being launched. Because the person on the front of the blob goes flailing into the air, you know, and lands in the center of the lake. And there is a segment of the population that thinks this is entertaining. First year, apparently Arnold T. Blob had just invented the device. There were some glitches that we needed to work out, okay? First thing, we go up there and kids are lined up, waiting for like an hour for their shot to get on the blob. First little glitch, we realize. You ever jump in an inner tube after it's been kind of baking in the sun all afternoon? Ooh, that's, that's ugly. Well, that's an easy, quick fix. They put a garden hose up there. They start hosing down the blob. Good news, the blob is no longer hot. Bad news, that is one slippery blob, all right? And we are watching kids just one by one jump off this thing, hit the back of the blob, bloop, and then just land right into the lake. Swim to shore, get out, and get in line again. And they're getting a little further every time, you know, some poor kids, they get about halfway out, and bloop, they slip off and get out again. The most frustrating, can you imagine this poor kid, he lands on the back of the blob, he gets all the way up to the front, and while he's giving the okay sign... He slips off, all right? So I tell this story with a certain degree of pride because one of my boys was actually one of the first ones to navigate the blob. My oldest, who was only 10-year-old at the, the time, Jesse, hits the back of the blob and he gets all the way up to the front of the blob and he gives the okay sign. This introduced the next bit of a glitch in blob technology the what soon became known as the importance of small weight differential <laughs> what that means is you want someone launching you that weighs approximately what you weigh all right so here's my little 10-year-old toehead sitting on the front of the blob and i look up at the high dive and i realize i know that person I met that person this morning at the adult meeting. He came up to me after my message and he said, I thought I recognized you when you said you've spoken to 26 of the NFL teams. I realized I knew you. Do you recognize me? I just retired from the Raiders. He said, well, I played the offensive line You might not recognize me. I've gained a little weight since I retired. 
this is the guy that's going to launch my 10-year-old. So this guy goes flying off the high dive, and he hits the back end of it. And folks, I, I make my living choosing words. The word launch is inadequate at this point. My son is flying through the air. I mean, you know, I think radar picked him up in Albuquerque, I think. You know, I mean, it was just horrible. He landed way over there, you know. Swims to shore, and as only a 10-year-old gets out, what's he say? Oh, that was great. Can we do it again? You know. I thought, man, what an amazing experience. But it did help me understand a metaphor that I'm going to go out on a limb and say you maybe have never heard before. Ladies and gentlemen, here's our lesson for today. Life is a blob. Because think about it. Let's go back to school. Remember eighth grade science? The eighth grade science teacher used to teach us that if you want to have success on something like a blob, what you need to maintain is what the science teachers called dynamic equilibrium. You and I know it as balance. If you don't stay balanced on the blob, you will fall off. The reason you will fall off is another term our eighth grade science teacher told us that we do all know about. It's the word gravity. Gravity is pulling us to the left, pulling us to the right, pulling us forward, pulling us backwards, so that there are all these pressures that may cause us to lose dynamic equilibrium, cause us to lose our balance. As I explore this subject, not only in my own personal life, but in the lives of my friends and the lives of people that I come in contact with all the time, those of us who struggle to try to bring balance in life are struggling because we have a multitude of really good things in our life. Just like gravity, in most instances, is a good thing. You are grateful for gravity this morning, or you'd be floating up in the ceiling amongst the lights in a very uncomfortable position. But gravity is a good thing. Most of what we do in our life that causes us imbalance are good things. If you are married, you want to invest in your marriage. That's a good thing. If you're a parent, you want to invest in your kids. That's a good thing. If you're a grandparent, you want to invest in your grandkids. That's a good thing. If you work for a living, you want to be a good worker. If you want to be accepted in your neighborhood, you know you ought to be nice and you ought to cut your grass every now and then. You know, you realize there's certain that you want to plug into the church. You want to get involved in some of the small groups or the Sunday school classes. You want to, you know, uh, take a little uh, class at the community college, you, you want to join a bowling league. You, these are all good things, but where do we find the time to do all this? And probably an even bigger question is, does God care at all about this? Is God at all interested that you and I have a balanced life? And I hope before we're through this morning, you'll understand that the answer is yes. God is very interested and would love for all of us if nothing else, as a way to express glory to Him, to live a life that is characterized by balance. That I am not giving so much of my life to one aspect that I am abusing and neglecting other aspects of my life because of my involvement somewhere else. Get it? So, I went to the Scriptures. I tried to look for verses that would talk about balance, and then I got the idea, why don't I look for someone in the Bible who illustrated a balanced life. So I started at the top. Why not look at the perfect one? When the Lord Jesus was on earth, how did he live his days so that he reflected balance in his life? 
Interestingly enough, I've been in ministry my entire adult life, went to seminary, did all the drill. I was shocked at how difficult it was to find a 24-hour period in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There aren't that many time references in the Gospels that deal with a wristwatch. Most of the time references deal with the calendar. It was the week of the feast. It was the, you know, the very little, it was 3 p.m. and Jesus said to the disciples, time for a Starbucks run. Whose turn is it to take the order? It, it's just not there as much as I had hoped. And so I think I found a day, a 24-hour day in the life of the Lord Jesus. It's in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6. And in that, we see three aspects of Jesus' life that I want us to consider, and then we want to apply it to our own lives as well and expand our scriptural study of what God has to say. Mark chapter 6, verse 6, is a very unusual verse in the Bible because the paragraph actually begins in the middle of the verse. Mark 6, 6b says, He, Jesus, was going around the villages teaching. So the first thing that I would see in a day in the life of Jesus is that he taught. And the reason that is important is that says to me that tasks were an important part of his life. Jesus accomplished tasks. He was a teacher. Now, I guess you have to grow up thinking about Jesus the way I grew up thinking about Jesus to have this have the full impact. And I think a lot of us have grown up in kind of a similar situation. I grew up back east. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to church every Sunday. I knew all the Bible stories. All, all, and, and we always talked about the importance of having a relationship with Jesus, which is absolutely true. Theologically sound, I would not undermine that in any way, shape, or form. But as a youth, hearing only about being in relationship with Jesus, that Jesus was the discipler, he had 12 guys, and I always viewed them as just simply hanging out, spending time together, it never even occurred to me that Jesus accomplished tasks in a typical day in his life. Another way to say it in a more silly form, if Jesus were around today, what would his business card read? You know, the Lord Jesus, creator of the universe, savior of the world. That might be a little much to, you know, new folks. He could simply put, also in all honesty, Jesus of Nazareth, teacher. Now, to me, that's very important because Jesus did not just hang out. Jesus was not just looking for some guys to spend time with. He accomplished tasks. Lest any of us think, you know, work in itself is inherently evil. Didn't Adam and Eve start out innocent, but then they messed up and God said something about, now you'll really sweat with the work that I'll put on your back. And so uh, work is bad. I just hate work. Well, that's not God's view. We'll see shortly that God has designed us so that we can work. So tasks are very important in the life of Jesus. Now in verse 7, it goes right on and says, He, Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. So secondly, not only did Jesus teach, but secondly, He interacted. And that says to me that relationships were an important part of His life. 
This is the classic Jesus that many of us grew up knowing. The one who wants to be in relationship with us. The one who wants us to follow him, be a disciple of his, just like the 12 were disciples of his while he was on earth. They did. They hung out. They spent time together. Anyone who mentors or is being mentored, that's really what it's all about. It's not so much about the data that's passed along, but it's the connection that you're making while you're spending time together. Now, I address this issue of balance in life, not only in in churches, but I do a lot of it in the corporate settings as well. And it's fascinating to me when you talk about this in a business setting, that you'll get a lot of nods and, you know, they've been through the whole organizational psychology deal. And and on this part, it's, it's right on. It's very valid. Organizational psychologists would suggest you could take this room this morning and divide it in half. You're all potential leaders. You're all people who could manage and do well in the company. But half of you are what we would call task-oriented leaders, and the other half of you are what we would call relationship-oriented leaders. Both are equally effective, but they approach life very differently. Task-oriented leaders, okay, we got six weeks to do a task, so here's what I'm thinking. We got to have this accomplished by the end of week two. This is accomplished by the end of week four. We'll have the task accomplished by week six. It's beautiful, all right? Relationship-oriented leaders say, I have six weeks to do this task, so you know what I need? I need a dream team. And Frank, you're going to be on sales, and Sally, you're going to be on marketing, and Joe, you're gonna, and we're going to have a great big party when this thing's over to celebrate. There's always a food subtext to relationship-oriented people. A lot of food. But they get the job done. They're very, very effective, but in two very different ways. Most of us probably already know which way we're wired. If you're having trouble, here's the big giveaway, especially for task-oriented people. Task-oriented people are ruled and love and live for to-do lists. Highlight of the day, creating a to-do list. It's exhilarating. There's only one thing more exhilarating than creating a to-do list, and that's putting that little check by each little task that you fulfill. It's amazing. Okay? And relationship-oriented people, you're the kind of people that's like, oh, I can't wait to get to church. Why? To hear the Word of God taught? Yeah, yeah, that too. But I'm going to see Joe, and I'm going to see Mary, and I haven't seen Frank. Come on, let's go over. We'll have a bagel. We'll talk about this. Let's eat. Let's talk. And it's beautiful. Now, forgive me that I should say something like this in church, but there are some task-oriented people that look down their nose at relationship-oriented people. And they say things like, those relationship-oriented people are lazy. They don't get anything done. Everything's a meeting. Let's have a meeting, bring in sandwiches, talk about this. And of course, as a task-oriented person, I hate it because I'm going to leave the meeting with eight more things on my to-do list that I didn't need. But the, and of course, the relationship-oriented people can look down at task-oriented people. Oh, those task-oriented people, look at you. You're cold, you're distant, you're aloof, you're alone. (laughs) And what a task-oriented people say, I'm not alone, it's right here on my list. Make a friend. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay, so, there's a reason why I'm belaboring this, folks. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so I like things nice and simple. All right, so I hope I'm not insulting anyone's intelligence by what I'm about to say. But isn't this 
inclination one way or the other, reason enough to explain why so many of us struggle with balance in our lives. Task-oriented people, as accomplished as they are, go to bed at night riddled with guilt because they haven't invested in the lives of the people around them like they know they should and that they want to. And it eats them up. And relationship-oriented people, as connected and involved and networked as they are, hit the pillow at night thinking, I got to get something done. No, I mean it. This time I really mean it. And, and there's this imbalance that's, cre- that's created. Here's Jesus teaching and interacting. So he's working this balance, but I think the key is the third area in his life that we see all the way down in Mark 6, verse 31, where he says to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. The third element in Jesus' typical day is that he found time alone, which says to me that privacy was an important part of his life. Tasks were an important part of his life. Relationships were an important part of his life. Privacy. Privacy is the missing element in our culture. Who is applauded for trying to get off and be alone? Our culture says never be alone. You're losing out on opportunities to influence other people. Don't waste your time by yourself. Jump right into your day. Get done the things you need to do. Look at our prisons. What's the ultimate punishment in prison? Solitary. You have to be by yourself. And those of us who are really tough parents, we'll get into it. Go to your room, young lady. You think about what you've done. Can I stay out here? No, you go to your room. Watch the small TV. It's tough love, darling. And rather than thinking of solitude as a time of introspection, a time of reflection, one of the spiritual disciplines, if you would, we think of it as a punishment, as something that is irrelevant. But I would like to suggest that it was really the key element in Jesus' ability, ability, humanly speaking, to live a balanced life day after day after day. And I would suggest to you that we can now move his lifestyle into something that you and I can apply. That a day in the life of Jesus can be, in many ways, replicated in our own lives. What does a day in your life look like? Well, I hope it has the same three elements. I've renamed them so that they're hopefully a little more memorable for you. The first one is what I would call attention, okay? Attention. And that is defined as giving attention to the tasks that you must accomplish in your life. Because I think it's very important that you understand what we're trying to do here. If you are task-oriented, you know God loves it. You need to know that God values connection. If you are relationship-oriented, you need to understand that that people who are accomplishing things are also doing what God has asked them to do. My favorite verse on this is in 1 Peter. I think it says 2 Peter in your outline, but it's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, 
employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I, I, I love the wording. You have a gift, employ it. Put it to work like an employer puts an employee to work. Employ where you're strong into your life. So we have to back up and ask the question, do you know where you're strong? I mean, rattle off all the cliches. Do you know your sweet spot in life? Do you know your skill set? Do you know the spiritual gifts that God has given you so that you are uniquely equipped to do particular kinds of work? If you don't, I'd stop everything and make that one of your top priorities for the next six months. Figure out what it is that I do well. If you read the 31 chapters of Proverbs, I think you begin to see an equation that kind of surfaces in this regard. And it goes like this. Gift plus diligence equals satisfaction. Gift plus diligence equals satisfaction. The most satisfied people on earth are people who know how God has wired them and they work out of that strength to do what God has asked them to do and they experience great satisfaction. Now that can be very intimidating. You know, again, for relationship-oriented people, say, well, these task-oriented people really freak me out and, and the corporate world is filled with them. It's, it's a big contest of who can work harder and who can work longer and who can do well. And I remember when I first started speaking in corporate uh, events, it, it just totally intimidated me. I mean, this was years and years ago. I remember that the state-of-the-art technology back then was people started carrying pagers, and I'd be giving a presentation, and all of a sudden I'd hear beep, 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 and everybody would turn and look, and you could just see the look in their eye. That, that man's important. He just got paged in the middle of the speech. Well, I thought to myself, well, I can do that, and I remember I didn't have anybody who could page me, but I'd give a presentation, I'd hear a beep, 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 and I'd pull my suit jacket back and play with something on my belt, and they'd think, wow, that speaker is important. He just got page in the middle of a speech. I had no idea I'm carrying my garage door opener. <laughs> and I hear beep, beep, beep. Whoa, he's important. No, he's not. He just opened a door in Newport Beach. I mean, what's the big deal? <laughs> but we get so caught up with how do we balance all this? Well, we need to understand that God wants us to value work. A couple of sub-questions I would ask under this is, what is your mission? Why has God left you here? Now, be careful, mature, knowing the Scriptures, Christian. It's easy to kind of rattle off the standard, broad-brush verses of why we're here on earth. We glorify God. We go out in all the world and preach the gospel. These are all good things. But I want you to focus it even more specifically. Why are you, with your skill sets, and your gifts here. What is your mission? And then I think it's valuable to ask, well, why do I work? Why does a Christian work? Well, from God's perspective, it's part of the stewardship. I mean, I gave you these gifts so that you would be diligent with them. And you're able to make money and give back to, I mean, it all belongs to God anyway. It's a stewardship. Uh, in my family, working is a provision. I can take care of them. To my children, work is a legacy. Five kids, one daughter, four sons. I remember when my sons were teenage boys, in the summer in particular. I'd go into their room. They're still in bed. It's, you know, late in the day. And I'd go in and I'd say, boys, look at me. 
I'm dressed. I'm up. I'm going to work. I'll come home later today with money. You can do this too, boys. Watch, learn. It's fun. And to this day, some of them still haven't quite got it, but nonetheless, it's a legacy. It's that we teach. And then to our community, work is a testimony. I don't know about you, but one of the most distressing things I can ever hear from someone who does not know what a true Christian is all about is someone who'll say, oh yeah, I know the guys that are Christians. Yeah, they're the people. They come in latest, leave the earliest, cut all the corners, do the shoddiest work, always making excuses about someplace else they got to be, and we're always doing damage control on their behalf. May that never be said about Christians. Just the opposite. I don't know what they believe and I don't know why they all believe, but I'll guarantee you they're the best people on my workforce. They work the hardest. They do the most integrous work. They've got quality. And that honors God. So attention is very, very significant in our lives. The second part is what I would call connection. Okay? Connection. And that's where we relate to one another. Jesus' familiar words from John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now most of us know John 13 is the Last Supper. It's the Thursday evening before Jesus will go to the cross Friday noon. And yet it's been interesting, over the last few years, Kathy and I have developed an, another extension of our ministry where we've started offering um, a workshop, a seminar to help communicators take their speaking to the next level, how to help speakers speak better. And I've studied speaking for years, I've taught it, and you know, it, it just seemed like a natural. And one of the things that I try to help people understand it would be very similar to what they would teach a, a, a brand new journalist at a newspaper. You never bury the headline in the middle of the story. If you've got something important you want to communicate, folks, you either open with it or you close with it. It's your big beginning or your big ending. You never bury it in the middle if you want to be an effective communicator. And that's why I find it so intriguing that even though John 13, 34 to 35 is 34, 35 verses into the Last Supper, 34 takes place immediately after Judas has been identified and embarrassed and he leaves the room and therefore it's the very first thing that Jesus says to his 11 faithful lieutenants and it has great power, mind-blowing power. Jesus did not say, this is how people will know you're connected to me. Because you know what you believe and you have a firm faith. And that you are men of integrity and your word. And those are excellent character qualities. But he said, this is how people will know you're connected to me. Because you love each other. It's all about relationship. I did a meeting several years ago where one of the other speakers was uh, Rabbi Kushner, the, the dear man who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he's a wonderful communicator, great storyteller. And I lifted one of his stories. If you've not heard it, listen, this will really drive home what I'm talking about. It's the story of a man sitting on a beach watching a boy and girl play in the sand. 
They're building an elaborate sandcastle, and just when they had almost finished, a big wave came along and knocked the sandcastle down, reducing it to wet mud. Well, the man was certain they would burst out crying for all their hard work had gone to waste, but the children fooled him. They didn't cry. They actually ran up the shore laughing, holding hands, and sat down to build another sandcastle. And the man realized the important lesson the children had taught him. No matter how good you are, no matter how smart you are, sooner or later, a wave may come and knock down all that you have worked so hard to build up. And when that happens, only the person who has somebody's hand to hold will be able to laugh. When someone is in their dying days, you never hear them say, I only have a short time here. Bring me my files. Bring me computers. I'm dying. I want data. Nope. Bring me people. Bring me people who have been important in my life. And we don't have to wait till our deathbed to get the message. Connection is very, very significant from God's point of view. Sooner or later, we have to get the message that even though I am continually told at work that all that matters is work, I have to understand I have people in my life that are weary of being reduced to rubber balls who will bounce back because they are resilient because I am never available for them. They have to understand that they are equally as important as the job I perform. Attention, connection. The final one is reflection. Reflection. David said it in the Psalms, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It reflects my life in broad brush. Isaiah said, in quietness and trust is your strength. It's what many of us who have known the Lord for a long time know as quiet time, devotional study, a time of reflection, a time to sit and quietly listen to God speak to us. And if you practice that discipline, I'm here to affirm you and applaud you. If you don't, I'm here to tell you you really deserve to start doing it because it'll radically change your life. Because here's what I would add to what so many of us do in our normal prescribed quiet time. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think so. From the time I was young, I remember one of my Sunday school teachers taught me how to pray. What do you pray for? Well, boys and girls, we pray for our leaders. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for the people who are sick. We pray for the people who don't know Jesus. And these are all wonderful, valuable prayer requests that I would never eliminate from the list. But I'm embarrassed to tell you how old of a man I became before I realized, you know what I can add to that list? And dear God, today, can I ask you to help me be a more balanced person? That, Lord, you know, perhaps, I am incredibly task-oriented. So would you bring people into my day, this day, that are so engaging that I am just drawn into them and so that I can engage in relationship with the people that really matter? Or, or the opposite. Lord, you know how I love to connect with people. 
would you give me courage and strength this day to put a do not disturb sign on my office cubicle or not check my email as much or do whatever I need to do to avoid the distraction that connection can provide in order to accomplish the tasks that I need to accomplish. I mean, for some reason, we think that's too mundane as a prayer request to bring before our Heavenly Father. But I would like to submit to you it's a very important prayer request because a balanced life reflects a life that glorifies God. And that's what we want in our lives. So if I were to kind of summarize it, you have at the bottom of your outline a triangle. And um, somehow this didn't get communicated quite properly to the printer with the outline, so we're going to think outside the box. Uh, For you to really appreciate this today, and so that you'll never forget the importance of this triangle, it's going to require you to turn your notes upside down, okay? Okay. Now you got the upside down notes. Now you have what I call the priorities triangle. And the placement of the points is significant and you'll get it in a minute, okay? In the upper left-hand corner, I'd love for you to write the word attention, okay? And in the upper right-hand corner, I'd love for you to write the word connection. And then down at the bottom, I would like for you to write the word reflection. And the visual I'm trying to create by the triangle being put that way, is that reflection is the fulcrum from which the other two find their balance. It's counterintuitive, I realize, but basically what I'm suggesting to you is the way to balance two things in your life is to bring a third into the picture. It just sounds like it's making it busier, but it's not. It's that which will bring balance. Maybe a better way to put it is this way. Growing up in Philadelphia, this time of year, uh, teenage boys love to go out outside the city to a frozen lake and play ice hockey. And I love to play ice hockey. I had one small disadvantage. I didn't know how to ice skate. But other than that, it was a beautiful experience. And ice hockey really was a beautiful experience for me because of this very principle. You know how I got to play ice hockey? It's very simple. Even though I didn't know how to skate, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It goes like this. Left skate, right skate, stick. The stick, the third leg, is what kept me up. Now, obviously, if I ever lifted the stick, boom, I'm flat out on the ice, which is why, of course, I'm playing goalie. But the stick was that third leg that provided balance. If I said to you, you've all been a wonderful congregation today, and as a little treat, I I bought all of you a brand new state-of-the-art digital camera. Please go to the back and pick up your free gift. And by the way, to go along with it, I have a brand new uh, state of the technologically advanced thing. Everyone gets a new bipod that you can put your camera on, a two-legged stand. How you feeling about that, folks? Doesn't sound real good, does it? Two legs don't stand up. Three legs stand up. We need that third leg. We need that third leg of the stool, third leg of the tripod, third leg of the triangle to give us the balance that we need. There's a lot more about this that I have in a little book I did uh, called Balancing Work and Life. And because people who struggle with balance, don't have time to read a thick book. It's very short and inexpensive. 
And Kath and I will be out in the back if you'd like to have a copy. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Lord, for all my brothers and sisters that sit in this room this morning, I pray that you would give us the answer to our prayer. That you truly would make us balanced men and women. For those of us who lean towards tendencies in a certain direction, I pray that you would give us the courage and the wisdom to move forward in the other way in order to be a more balanced person. That we could be still and know that you are God and hear you speak about the significance of a balanced life. Thank you for your model in the Gospels. Thank you for your connection in relationship. You've given us data. You've given us connection. May we reflect on it and be more balanced people in the days and weeks to come. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.